Well, good morning. Welcome. Uh, if you feel like coming a little bit forward, do so. Get into the warmth of the main building. That would be great. Okay, so I'm going to ask my lovely wife here to, to read uh, Luke chapter 7 for us today. If you don't have an uncover book, please grab one. And if you don't have a pen, I'll go and grab some pens because it would be great to make notes in this book. So we're going to read uh, Luke chapter 7 together. Thanks, son. Now, I've been known to uh, put people to sleep with my voice, so I encourage you to read along with me and um, actively listen. Luke chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd, followed him, He said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the briar they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who has to come, or should we expect somebody else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. 
After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of woman, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God, God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her children. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Wonderful to read an extended portion of God's word. Let's just uh, pray before we uh, start. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the words penned in your scriptures. Father, we pray that by your spirit this morning you will convict us, you will move us to have a greater understanding of who Jesus is. Father, it's our desire to be confronted with the love of the Saviour. It's our desire to grow in our knowledge of him. Father, it's our desire to proclaim him in the, in the places you place us. It's our desire to worship him. So, Father, this morning as we look at these wonderful stories and parables, give us certainty, certainty like Theophanus, that the truth of what Jesus did and said is true. Increase our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Through our lifetimes, uh, we are subject to something that we don't like, and, and those dislikes normally relate to reports. You know, from your early childhood, uh, you received the dreaded teacher's report. If your report was anything like mine, it would probably say something like this. Uh, you know, enjoys athletic endeavor, enjoys physical education, but needs to try a little bit harder in mathematics, arithmetic, and science. However, uh, still a reasonable student. Uh, we also receive reports when we come to the end of our schooling, don't we? And we have the dreaded VCE. In my day in New Zealand, it wasn't VCE, it was something called University Entrance, and, and that report really focused on your academic ability. And then you get further reports as you receive degrees or diplomas or doctorates or whatever the level of education might be, and, and by receiving and being granted that particular degree, it, it shows a report about your ability to, to think and to apply and to learn. Within your workplaces, who here gets a performance appraisal? Within your marriage, who gets a performance appraisal? <laughs> yes, in our workplaces, it's a common practice to, to um, have these appraisals uh, and they're tied to what you should be doing and how you should be doing it, etc. If you're in a professional environment, uh, you will have a, a standard a a board standard to adhere to if you're a nurse or a doctor or a real estate agent or a lawyer or an accountant. There will be a professional body which ensures that what you do is uh, in standard. It's a report function. I can vividly remember the times when I used to employ people. Uh, prior to pastoring a church, I ran sales teams and those sorts of things and I used to receive resumes about people's ability if they're applying for a job. 
Has anyone ever here really seen a bad resume? No, you don't. You don't see bad resumes, do you? Normally you receive a report and a resume and it highlights all the, the benefits of the person's abilities, skills and, uh, and what have you. And you, know, you look at a resume and it's a bit like a golf card really, isn't it? Like uh, if you ever play golf and you're, you're on the first tee and you, you, you look at the golf card, nothing has more promise than that golf card because you've got the ability to try and uh, work that golf card to, to, to show that you've mastered the game. And it's a bit like a, a resume. Nothing has more promise than that. And, um, but what you find as you pick resumes and you pick people and you interview people, you start seeing some inconsistencies between what is written and the person you have before you. And that's the process that we all go through. After some phone checks and reference checks, um, you, you determine what that person is like to some degree. And you either offer them a job or you don't. So, you know, we are all subject to reports. It's interesting here in, in Luke chapter 7, we've got the same sort of thing happening because John is in prison. John the Baptist is in prison. He had been promised by God through Zechariah and through, through the word of God that he was the forerunner to the Messiah. And yet John is concerned about the reports he is hearing about Jesus. We read in verse uh, 17 of chapter 7, And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding region. What report? That he had raised somebody from the dead that um, perhaps he was a prophet, that perhaps he was a great prophet, and that God had visited his people. He'd also heard other reports, but John had questions in his mind because his view of Messiah was not only someone that would do this miraculous, but someone that would bring judgment. Judgment upon his people. Because he had noted that... uh, the one who is after me is someone who will empower you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Those two things that we talk about in Luke chapter 3 are, are empowered by God's Spirit, but in a judgmental sense. Fire will come down and judge our sin. So I think John is sitting in prison and he's thinking, the things I'm hearing about Jesus, are they really true? So he grabs two of his disciples because, and that's significant, when you grab two people, you want a sure testimony. You know, when the two go and visit Jesus, that when they come back, the testimony is accurate between the two. He grabs two of his disciples, John, and he he sent them to ask the Lord a question. Are the one who is to come or should we look for another? Because John had heard these two reports, these reports of two different healings. Let's just briefly summarize those healings. You've got the very first healing in the first 10 verses of chapter 7. The characters involved, and if you've got your little uncover book, write out the characters. It's really helpful when you go through these stories to determine who the characters are and and what is going on here. You've got a... The location is in Capernaum, it's in the northern shores of the Lake of Galilee. 
And you have a centurion, someone who works for Rome, a Gentile. And he has a, he has a servant who's sick. He's almost dead. He's that crook. But the centurion highly values this servant. So he sends some Jewish elders to Jesus. Don't know why he chose Jewish elders, but the story tells us he did. He chose some Jewish elders. And it, it really fascinates me the way that the Jewish elders approach Jesus and ask him. They approach him with this question, you know, hey, can you please have mercy on the servant of the centurion because the centurion has been very helpful to us. He's built our temple, or synagogue, sorry, and he's, um, he likes us. So it's interesting that the Jewish view of it is that because this guy's works are so good and righteous, hey, take notice of him, Jesus. Just hold that thought. And then we have a crowd here as well. So we have a sick servant. We have a centurion who values his servant. We have these Jewish elders requesting something of Jesus on behalf of the centurion. And we have a crowd following and watching. And the thing that is to note here, wonderful thing is the response of the centurion. Verse 6, put a circle around it. Jesus went with them. He, he paid attention to the request. He, he went forward to, to meet with him. And when Jesus wasn't far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. A testimony of the centurion. He says, I am unworthy. I am unworthy. And then he says, therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. It's interesting, as you look at the primary language there, say the word as a command. Jesus, I acknowledge that you can just command with your voice and he will be healed. I acknowledge that I won't presume this. It's got to be an act of your will. Let my servant be healed. And what is Jesus' response? He marveled at the centurion's faith. He marveled at this Gentile's faith. Someone who probably did not understand the promises of God in light of what we're reading in Luke. Someone who did not understand that a Messiah would come. But the centurion knew that this man was God's son. This man could heal. This man had authority. And at his command, this would happen. That's great faith. And Jesus says, I tell you, I haven't seen anything like this in Israel. In Israel, they kicked me out of my hometown synagogue. In Israel, I've got their religious elite continually having a go at me about my practice of eating corns of grain, of healing on the Sabbath. This man has faith. He acknowledges who I am and he acknowledges the authority I have. And then Jesus heals the servant. I reckon there's two healings going on in this story. The physical healing of the servant, the spiritual healing of the centurion. 
because of his faith. So that's the report John's hearing. And then he hears a second report of a healing where, where it's based entirely on Jesus' compassion. He's walking a little bit further south through a city of Nain, a town, and he sees a funeral procession. And Jesus, no one asked Jesus to heal. Jesus and himself is moved by compassion. Moved greatly by compassion. He goes up and he touches the, the coffin. And he says to the man inside the coffin, get up, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. You know, and here you have the widow's son, you have the disciples who are with him, you have the great crowd who's following Jesus, and you have the dead man himself, you have his mother, and you have a mourning crowd. And Jesus responds with great compassion as he heals this man and raises him from the dead. This miracle shows Jesus' authority over the grave. This miracle shows us that Jesus has the power to conquer sin. Because what does death mean? We die because of what? Sin. The wages of sin is death. Everyone here in this room is testimony to the sinful state in which humanity is in because we all die. Jesus conquers that in this illustration by raising the dead. And we have the response of the crowd. Fear sees them. Now, I'm not sure if this is a fear and trembling fear, like I'm frightened because of this wonderful thing I've seen, or if it's a, a fear of awe. The text really doesn't tell us. But maybe it is associated because they glorify God. It was a fear of awe. Okay, because they, they glorify God, but they still didn't quite understand what was going on. Because yet a great prophet has risen amongst us. Why would they say that to him? Well, because other prophets in the past had raised people from the dead, Elijah and Elisha. They were looking at that probably in their own mindset. It was a Jewish situation. Well, other prophets had done this. God's visited us. And as you would expect, a a miracle of resurrection like this and a raising from the dead spread throughout the whole of Judea. So these are the reports that John heard. But he still had in his thinking, well, what's going on, Lord? Are you, are you really the Christ? That's the question he asks. We have affirmation here that the centurion understood it. He understood who Jesus was. He didn't have any, any ethnic background to understand that. He just accepted who Jesus was. Then we have the compassion that Jesus showed upon his own people in raising someone from the dead. But they were confused about who he was. And John is the same. He's a little confused. And so John sends these two disciples to come and see Jesus, to ask the question, are you the one? 
Jesus responds in verse 21. In that hour. So he didn't wait. These guys were here. It was immediate. In that hour, what did he do? He healed many people of disease and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind received the sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news that is preached to them. So John said, Jesus said to John's disciples, if you want proof, here it is. There's five ways of healing that go on here if you read them. There's five healing type things. But they're all combined with the fact that, hey, I'm here to preach the good news. To offer good news to the poor. And we learnt last week, blessed are the poor. We're not talking materially, economically poor here. We're talking poor in spirit, those who are humble, those who are crying out for a saviour. They're the ones that are hearing the good news. So Jesus authenticates his ministry. He actually says this, I am fulfilling what I have spoken to you in in Luke chapter 4. Remember in Luke chapter 4 when he hopped up into the synagogue in Nazareth, he opened the scroll with Isaiah 61, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are opposed, to proclaim the year of the Lord. And then he sat down and said, today in your meeting, this is fulfilled. Using the same terms here to John. What I said about myself in Nazareth, I'm fulfilling before your disciples here today. Go and tell John that he is blessed if he believes. Go and tell John not to be offended by me. Go and tell John that this is my mission. And then Jesus, after authenticating his own ministry, authenticates John's ministry. He asks three questions. What did you go out to see? Did you you go out to see a reed blowing by the river? Did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothing? Or did you go out to see a prophet? So he asks three questions of his audience here. He spoke to the crowd concerning John. He authenticates John. You didn't just go out to see John because you like the view of the River Jordan. You like to see the reeds blowing in the wind. You didn't go out to John to just to see his um, wild man's clothing. You went out to see a prophet. And then Jesus authenticates John by saying he is more than a prophet because he is proclaiming me, the salvation of all mankind. And he affirms it by saying, hey, there's none born of woman greater than John because he is proclaiming me. But then he gives another promise which is wonderful for you and I. He says, even though John is great in what he has done and what he has proclaimed, He is no greater than anyone who's least in the kingdom. 
The real rub here is those who accept my message, those who accept faith in Christ, are greater than John. And then, after authenticating his own ministry, authenticating John's ministry, he looks and he tells a parable. Actually, prior to him telling the parable, he, he makes a statement. Verse 29 and 30. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So what's happening here is the ministry of John and Jesus separates people. Completely separates people. Some who heard the message of John went out and were baptized and he says they are sinners and tax collectors. Those who are humble on heart know they need a saviour. Whereas those who rejected that were those who were the religious elite, and the lawyers. And not, no, they're not just rejecting John and Jesus, they're rejecting the purposes of God. Powerful statement. And after saying this, he said, well, okay, what can I compare you people to? Remember, he's talking to the crowds. What can I compare this generation to? And he asked two questions. To what then shall I compare the people? That's the first one of this generation. And what are they like? How can I compare you and what are they like? And then we have this really unique little parable. He said, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you. And you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. This is affectionately known as the brat parable. Okay, you know, brats as in misbehaving children. Okay, so this is what this sort of parable is known as. Who has a brat here? No, sorry. <laughs> we all know what misbehaving children are like. Um, and this is the way Jesus relates what this generation is like. This generation is significant in that it generalizes the current response to both John and Jesus. So the people that are there, the people that are sitting under the ministry of John and Jesus. And he's lightening this, that generation to a generation that is immature and childish. And they played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So you know, it's like that sort of tantrum thing going on. We did this thing, but you did not follow us. He's likening that generation to that. You know, with this parable, I think that Jesus is targeting the Jewish elite. He's targeting the Pharisees and the lawyers. Because, you know, the leadership always complained that John and Jesus did not follow their desires. You know, they complained about John's lifestyle. Why would you be out there 
issuing a message of repentance when you're eating locusts and honey and you're dressed as a wild man. We don't quite agree with that lifestyle. And with Jesus, well, we don't quite like Jesus' lifestyle. He's eating with sinners, with tax collectors. You see, from the leader's perspective, from the lawyer's and the Pharisee's perspective, God's messengers here are at fault for not listening to them. The leaders do not wish to enter the game unless it is played according to their rules. You know, don't do this on the Sabbath. Don't meet with sinners. Definitely don't share the gospel with Gentiles. And he says, this generation is like children who play only if they make the rules. John in his life lived with restrictions. He went to a Nazarite vow. Jesus lived without restrictions. And both those lifestyles, the Pharisees could not correlate. But then he ends the parable by saying, however. Yet wisdom is justified by her children. I think this is trying to say that um, he's describing those who are justified by God accept the message of Jesus and John. They are a product of divine wisdom and activity. And they stand in a different camp to those Pharisees and lawyers. It's a contrast he's making. So we see this tension going through this chapter. We see a Gentile unbeliever have great faith. We see a Jewish widow receive compassion from a gracious Lord. We see Jesus authenticate his message by his acts. We see John's message authenticated by the fact that Jesus says this man's message is true. And we see a nation condemned. Not the entire nation, just a fraction of the nation. Those who should have known better, the Pharisees and the lawyers, condemned because of their imposition of rules upon how salvation should look. And then we have a wonderful, wonderful story. Do you allow me to go for five more minutes or? Okay. Great. I'm pleased about that. Uh, Better ask the Sunday school teachers. <laughs> and then we have this wonderful story of a Pharisee inviting Jesus to his house. And he comes to dine. And, and what do we know about this? Well, the fact that or the location is clearly Simon's house. We have Simon the Pharisee who is there. We have a woman of the city known as a sinner. We don't know what a sin is. The story doesn't tell us what her sin is. A lot of people say, oh, she's a prostitute. Well, the story doesn't tell us that. What we know is that her sin was known. And we have guests of Simon around this table. 
And it's uh, likely that this is a, a special feast because they were reclining at the table. Normally during meal times they'd sit at the table just like you and I, but in special feasts they would recline. So this could be a Sabbath feast or it could be a, it's not a Passover, I probably would have said, but it's, it's a special feast because of the position in which they are around the table. And we have this woman of the city who is a sinner come into the, and that's the other reason we know it's a special feast because during special feasts the doors would be open for people to come in and out. That was just the tradition, you know, on a speak the wall. But we have this sinner come and just break an alabaster flask full of ointment over Jesus' feet. And we see a great major contrition in her heart or, or maybe it's just a contrition of joy as she weeps and anoints Jesus' feet, kisses his feet. And this is an incredibly respectful thing to do. This is not something that's unrespectful. This is a show of complete respect to Jesus of who he is. But you know, this is a bit too much for Simon. He said, how can this man be a prophet? I've heard you might be a prophet. I don't know about the rest of it, but I heard you might be a prophet. How dare you sort of let that woman of the city do that to you? And Jesus answered him. Simon didn't even verbally say this to Jesus. Jesus knew what his thoughts were. He answered him and said, Simon, I want to tell you a little story. And in a respectful way, Simon says, okay, say it, teacher. So Simon's not being disrespectful here. He's, he's realizing he has a guest there and he is respectful in his uh, communication. So I'll tell you this little parable. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So one had 10 times more debt than the other. Simon answered, uh, sorry, when they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them would love him more? So we've got an interesting situation here. We have two debtors that just cannot pay. Their pockets are empty. They have nothing left. And the question is, well, if the money lender cancelled the debt or if the bank came in and said, your mortgage is gone, or if the bank came and said, oh, your car loan is gone, which one would be more grateful? The one who's had their mortgage forgiven or the one who's had their car loan forgiven? Depends if your car was a Rolls Royce or not, I guess. But, you know, that's the scenario we've got here and that's what Jesus is asking him. Well, what's going on here, Simon? And Simon answered, well, I suppose the one who had the larger debt cancelled. Jesus said, you've judged rightly. And he uses the object lesson of this woman. Who has since he arrived not stopped worshipping Jesus. Not stopped giving thanks to Jesus for what she had received. I believe she had received forgiveness of sin prior to this account. And what she is doing is a response of that forgiveness. The couple of 
things that lead me to that, and I'll explain that a little bit later. But she sits there and she pours out her heart of love to the Lord. You see, the key to this parable is the term, to whom little is forgiven, loves little. That term assumes the presence of three elements of forgiveness. You have the first element, God offers forgiveness. You have the second element, reception of forgiveness. And you have the third element, God's confirmation that it's been received. In this parable, we see God's offer of forgiveness and the money lender who's offering to forgive the debt. We see reception of it. Both men who had debts said, okay, I don't, I accept that. The third aspect, the confirmation that it's been received, is seen in the picture of the woman who loves much. See, love, her love did not elicit the forgiveness. Her love was a response to what had happened to her. And she acted in love. And then Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Whereas the Pharisee and the lawyer loved little did not understand the issue that he was a sinner, did not understand the issue that he required forgiveness. It's like you and I here today. Do you understand the issue that God's forgiveness is an act of entire grace on our lives? And God's forgiveness is absolutely amazing. We want you to this week think through that. Think through what does God's forgiveness mean to me? Does it elicit a response of praise and worship at Jesus' feet? Or am I indifferent about my response? The centurion got it. John got it. The Pharisee missed it. The question is, do you get it? Because when we understand God's forgiveness, it shapes our lives. John Newton said, two things I understand. I am a great sinner, but I'm saved by a great Savior. He forgives totally. If that's not your experience, I appeal to you today. Don't wrestle with the issue of who Jesus is. Come in faith knowing who he is. He has the power to forgive sin. No matter what the past is, he has the power to forgive sin. Take um, comfort, solace in that. Seek him. He'll be found. And seek a position where your sins are forgiven. Because the result is you'll go in peace.
I think we'll have a closing song because of time, so we will um, we'll just pray and uh, then enjoy some fellowship together. Father, we thank you that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. Father, we thank you we can freely be recipients of that. We thank you as by your grace that you make this available to us. Father, we pray that this week as we wrestle with the issue of the fact that our sins are forgiven, that we'll walk in the light of that reality. Father, we pray that as we interact in our neighborhoods, within our workplaces, within our schools, that we'll be men and women who display the joy of the Lord in our hearts, that our sins are forgiven. Give us great courage, we pray, not to spurn the message of Jesus, but to proclaim it. Give us courage to live a life that is worthy of your grace. Father, help us to be daily uh, dwelling in the deep wells of your grace. We pray this now in the powerful name of Jesus, our Saviour and Lord. Amen.